Hi, I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. And we want to welcome you to Cave of uh, to the Cross Apologetics. This is uh, our show where we work through various uh, books, uh, Christian books, theology, philosophy, apologetics, that sort of thing, and to help you to um, understand what's going on as, as we see it anyway. Now we're working our way through Nancy Piercy's book, Finding Truth, Five Principles for Unmasking Atheism, Secularism, and Other God Substitutes. And we have worked our way to principle five, right? Uh, this principle says that uh, after we've identified uh, the particular uh, idol that every other worldview outside of Christianity has, right, then we... Um, look at how it's reduced by the particular proponent of that idol. And then we begin to critique it. We critique it with regard to how it fits the world. And we, we critique it with regard to whether or not it can consistently and um, logically hold up with regard to the principles that it holds. So we do an external critique, the world, and we do an internal critique. We apply what it says is true to itself, Right. And uh, she says, because the worldviews outside of Christianity are reductionistic, then they all fail these various uh, critiques, right? They attempt to, to take a piece of reality and make that the whole of reality. That's the idea of reductionism. Of course, when you do that, you leave things out, and therefore your worldview uh, falls apart when it's examined in this way. Uh, so then, once the worldview has fallen apart, right, after you examine it, <laughs> what do we do? As, as, as Yeah, we help them to pick up the pieces, right? We Principle 5 says we replace the idol, we make the case for Christianity. And so that's what we've been working our way through uh, here in this fifth chapter. Right. right. So uh, um, this, this uh, where we're starting, uh, kind of spills over from uh, the last episode. So if you haven't uh, uh, listened to that one greatly uh, suggest you do so. And uh, we're kind of going through uh, a, a series of quotes from people uh, who freely and openly, uh, sometimes not as loudly, but definitely some people that freely admit that uh, they are freeloading atheists, that they, they are, they are um, wanting to present their idea of a uh, kind of this formless void of, of a universe that has started because of nothing. Uh, there's, there's a process involved, uh, but uh, uh, then we have to smuggle in things like free will and the ability to know things and uh, non-material things uh, that that the Christian worldview is able to to uh, present and and have an explanation for, have a foundation and a basis for. Um, uh, but uh, they're coming through and saying, uh, you know, he, here's here's what our ideas lead to, uh, which seems to be. Survival of the fittest, uh, but we also want morality. So right, right. How, how do we achieve that? And they achieve that by stealing from the Christian worldview. And so or the world is just material, but we still want free will. Yeah, we right? still want it to be free. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, a, a proud atheist, a self-proclaimed proud atheist and evolutionist, Raymond uh, Tallis, a medical doctor and author of uh, Aping Mankind, <laughs> says, boy, there's, there's a lot of uh, unexplained uh, consequences as a result of of an atheistic uh, uh, worldview, or uh, at least a, a worldview um, de devoid of, of God. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he says um, things like, uh, "There not there a problem in explaining how blind forces of physics brought about cog uh, cognitively sighted humans who are able to see and identify and comment on the blind forces of physics? <laughs> how do forces of physics create being that tr transcend those forces? How, how do we add more to ourselves, our 
ethos, our, yeah. our, our character to, to transcend. So the blind forces of physics created something that could recognize the blind forces of physics. Yeah. Right? Something that transcends it, right? So, yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> um, why are humans able to rise above forces that uh, supposedly created them and engage with the nature uh, as if from the outside? Can a puppet gain control over the puppeteer? Uh, things like how did a purposeless process create beings with purposes? Or uh, isn't there a problem with explaining how undesigned process could produce one species that is indeed a designer? How did we get humans uh how, how did we humans get to be so different? How is it possible for humans to be so different from the forces that supposedly produce them? How can water rise above its source? Yeah. That's yeah. good. And that's, uh, th those are good questions asked. And so we'll, we'll see here's uh, his answer here. Uh, reductionists uh, would resolve the dilemma simply by decreeing that humans are not so different after all. Again, uh, they don't want to talk about these things. And so, um, uh, well, we, we want we want to be above uh, the universe and, and know it, but we can't really know it. That's what we would say. But do we, but do we know that? that? Isn't that something that we can know? And so uh, that, that seems to be an issue. Uh, in arts, uh, things, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Talis uh, says that uh, he, he rejects reductionism, uh, but he's concerned at, from a uh, neurobiological reductionist point of view that uh, it's starting to uh, inculcate itself uh, in other areas of, of, of the, of, of the, of the knowledge. Yeah. And everything else. So, yeah. So things like, uh, in the arts, um, we have works of arts that, um, is that we're drawn to because it stimulates the reward centers of our brain, not because they're beautiful or because they're aesthetically pre pleasing in some fashion or it evokes emotion, but, uh, your, your neurons fire and, we know that's where the pleasure center is at, just like how you eat a good peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Uh, looking at the the, the David uh, is is just the same thing, just maybe in different quantities. Or how neuroliteracy, uh, we love literature uh, uh, by scanning people's brains that read Shakespeare, and we see uh, that they're reacting in some way. So it's just a brain process. Or legal theory, uh, we, we, we figure out how to establish guilt or innocence, and we we know this through uh, MRI scans, mm. and so uh, we need to curtail laws uh, to to have those have, have guilt fire off more, so people won't commit crime. That's right. Yeah. Uh, there are other things like neuroeconomics, where uh, we use methods to determine how consumers uh, consumers' brains respond to brands and products. So again, it's not. Uh, uh, what praxeology would say, and, and that uh, that you make uh, free actions and choice based upon uh, your subjective needs, uh, uh, which is good Austrian uh, economics point of view, uh, but that you just respond to it. The, something flashes. Uh, the McDonald's puts red uh, because red is a sign of hunger, and so you see red, you see at McDonald's, and you're like, mm, I'm hungry. I'm hungry for McDonald's. I'll go towards the red to, to eat. Um, and even <laughs> neurotheology. Uses MRIs that? to find the God spot, wow. uh, the parts of the brain that supposedly lead people to conceive the idea of God and undergo mystical experiences. So these neuro theories are more faddish than factual. Talis complains, uh, and he um, has issues with with all these things. So what what's his idea? What 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 is he replacing? What, what is his answer for all the the reductionist uh, points that that uh, he made here at the the beginning of this part? Uh, what does he propose uh, to the reductionists he so passionately opposes? Nothing. Oh. 
Oh, again. Yep. His quote is, the truth is, I don't know. Wow. So again, oh. throws the grenade, runs, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, what do we learn about eavesdropping on atheists who, who, who are so open and honest about what they're experiencing and what, what they're what their worldview says and what the implications are and the fact that they don't like it. Well, first, many of them recognize the limitations and failure of their own worldview. Mm. A great, a great point. We can, Mm -hmm. we can agree on this. Um, I'm trying to think of, I always forget his name. He's always critical of uh, uh, Darwin's theory. Um, And I mentioned it a couple episodes ago. Oh, Oh yeah. It'll come to it. Yeah, it will. <laughs> uh, but he, he has really good conversations with Christians, but he won't ever admit to uh, a designer or intelligent designer or even that little bit. He just wants to be able to say, listen, these are all the, 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 the big parts of it. Mm. And so it's it's a good place to kind of start to, to talk about things. And second, another useful point is that atheists uh, find elements of the Christian worldview so appealing that they keep borrowing them. They are freeloaders. Mm. Mm. And again, so... Why is that a good thing? Because then you can point to that and say, whoa, 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 hold on. Morality, you, you as a, as a, a being of, of random chance and happenstance and that there, there's random laws yeah. and all, all that, or the yeah. laws of nature, whatever you've kind of reduced right. it to a way. Right? Yeah. Uh, you, you don't want to bring that into it because <laughs> that's a, that's a Christian idea that mm. you, you, something esoteric outside of ourselves that holds us accountable to our actions Justice? What? What is justice? How do you have justice in a world where, you know, you have have the murderer uh, able to get away and, and move to a different country and, and and not be held accountable? And what does that being held accountable even mean? Sitting in jail is that justice? I don't. Uh, that's the. Those are questions that we can start pointing to and say, what is true justice? What does that look like? Yeah. So uh, her next section uh, is um, entitled "Give Me That Old Time Philosophy." Right. And uh, she says perhaps the most egregious example of freeloading is a movement to hijack the explicitly religious dimensions of Christianity. Uh, For example, there's a new field that uses philosophy to treat psychological problems. Right, It's labeled philosophical counseling. And so the atheists who want uh, the psychological comfort of Christianity, um, uh, while rejecting the content of Christianity can then, you know, depend on philosophical counseling. And so she says a book on the subject uh, titled Plato, not Prozac, <laughs> became an international hit. And she says you can even get certified to be a philosophical counselor. All right. So philosophical counseling may be a new field, she says, but the concept itself is not novel. Philosophers have never been merely academic. You know, folks, right? It's never been merely an academic enterprise. They believe with a uh, with a God replacement. They begin, I'm sorry, with a God replacement and develop an entire worldview, uh, exhorting people how to make sense of life and right. to prepare for death. And and right? we 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 saw this especially in in Mitch Stokes' book, um, How to Be an Atheist. We we see people like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or um, uh, Richard Dawkins or. Um, people like Carl Sagan, who who you know want to point you to the beauty of this pale blue dot, and and you know you make really pretty uh, YouTube videos for it, and ultimately it's like, well, I'm just a speck of dust. I really don't mean anything. Uh, everything that I put uh, towards effort towards creating this this video, talking about how uh, beautiful the pale blue dot is, <laughs> is ultimately meaningless. Uh, uh, 
Well, yeah. uh, I, I guess I'm I'm happy now. I, that's where I find my happiness, right? Yeah. And so yeah. and so, meaninglessness. Yeah, and, yeah. So, and so we, we we've seen this rise. We've seen a rise of of going away from kind of these um, philosophical thinkers to more men of science and saying, oh, you explain, you know, um, where to find Halley's Comet really well or the, the traverse of the stars and, and explanations for it. Tell me how I should live my life. And so mm. we're, we're seeing that right now in this day and age. Yeah, good. Yeah. And so she gives some examples of this kind of idea and this kind of thinking, right? Uh, she talks about uh, Pierre uh, Haydot, I think is how you pronounce this word. In his book, A Philosophy as a Way of Life, Haydock says, uh, accepting a philosophy is like a religious conversion. It involves a total transformation of one's uh, vision, lifestyle, and behavior. It turns our entire life upside down. Right? You literally stake your life and your eternity on a set of ideas being true. She mentions that in, ancient, in the ancient world, when philosophy was still young, its life-transforming power was widely recognized. Hodot says he exhorted his charges, uh, that is, um, ancient uh, philosophers, exhorted their charges uh, to conversion, and then he directs uh, his new converts to the path of wisdom. So Hodak is seeking to recover that spiritual role that uh, the ancient uh, philosophers had, right? She mentions other um, uh, adherences to these uh, particular issues as well. But her bottom line is this. She says the common thread running through these examples is that they are all attempts to fill the God-shaped hole with something other than God. Right? One book, she says, makes the uh, claim, frankly, in its title, The Little Book of Atheist Spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> so atheists are even uh, finding their own churches, right? They're, they're even uh, creating their own churches, founding their own churches. Yeah. And they're splitting from each other yeah, on, yeah, a, yeah. On, a, on, on philosophical basis. Yeah. Britain now has its first atheistic uh, church. She, uh, she tells us, according to news reports, dozens of gatherings dubbed atheist megachurches are springing up uh, around the United States. So atheists, notice, are freeloading uh, the ceremonies of religious wor worship, right? Yeah. And what uh, they, they want to co-opt the rituals of Christianity while rejecting its reality. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, not all atheists uh, are, are so... Um, brazen about uh, admitting to the fact that they're stealing from Christianity. Right. And so we have uh, people that commit to science uh, that can function as an idol uh, and an ultimate commitment. When science is treated as the sole source of truth, then it becomes scientism. Mm. Uh, this is uh, Bertrand Russell, and he said, what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. <laughs> Like, so, like that. Yeah. <laughs> so notice all knowledge is based on science. Yep. And you can get no other knowledge outside of science. Right. right. So if it isn't based on science, you can't know it is right. what he's saying. Yep. Right? So what does that do to ethics? Right. Mm. <laughs> well, we, we'll test it. We'll, yeah. we'll weigh, we'll, we'll weigh guilt and, and, then we'll weigh not guilt. And so if you're heavier, I guess heavier would be bad, right? I think. And so we'll, we'll destroy ethics that way. Well, what does that do to love? Man, yeah. <laughs> well, that's just a chemical in your brain firing off. And, you know, you just, the, the, the love for your wife is different than the love for your child. And I'm sure we can measure that and, and have, have different areas go off. Yeah. 
Well, unfortunately, it is a metaphysical metaphysical assumption on arbitrary definition of what counts as genuine knowledge because they say all science or you know all knowledge comes from what science can discover. Well, the the one that I thought of. Uh, where uh, John Gray here, he says, uh, science hasn't enabled us to dispense with myths. Instead, it has become a vehicle for myths, chief among them, the myth of salvation through science. Mm, mm. Um, science <laughs> remains one of the today's most uh, popular idols. Any claim that begins with scientists now know is likely to trump <laughs> all competing claims. And so I was thinking of, of what, what's something that science knows? Well, eggs. Eggs are good for you. Except for when they were bad for you uh, three months ago. But then they were really good for you if you had certain things uh, uh, three months before that. But then they were really bad. And then salt tablets you should take, but now you shouldn't take them anymore. But the scientists have have come out and say, wear masks, don't wear masks. So we can be sure of what the science says. Uh, There's man-made global warming, says the scientists. And there is not man-made global warming, says the scientists. So what does science say? Well, science, science doesn't say anything. A lot of things, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, again, it's, which it's, re- which could result in or equal nothing if you know if you try to put them all together, right? right? And and this is what Mitch Stokes says: science doesn't say anything. Scientists say things. Mm. So that's that's mm. how we should be uh, phrasing our understanding. Don't give me what science says. Tell me what scientists say, right. and we can evaluate uh, what scientists say and, and and determine that. And there we can lead into a discussion on worldview. Yeah. Um, a commitment to science has even been shown to have psychological effects similar to religious commitment. Uh, the new scientist reports on a study showing that under stress, atheists responding with a higher commitment to a belief in science. The article concludes, it is well known that religious faith can help people cope with stress and anxiety by providing them with a sense of meaning and control at times of uncertainty. It now seems that belief in science and rationalist rationalistic outlook might do the same for the non-religious and this is scientism this is replacing uh pretty much here uh god or or a religious faith a religious belief uh with with science oh science says that i don't have to worry about um you know uh eating all that chocolate chocolate's good for me oh, okay I, I you know little white lies are okay because they, they they make you feel less guilty in the end okay that that's good i'm glad science didn't do that even the theory of evolution often cited as uh, support for atheism can function as a substitute for religion. And, and that's pretty obvious. Um, uh, and we see with worship, um, we see even uh, that um, uh, evolution is promulgated with, uh, as an ideology, a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. And uh, they've even had a, uh, a funeral for our good friend uh, uh, Darwin, which uh, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in in the in the worldview of of uh, you know returning to dirt and that's all you are and nothing happens why mm-hmm. why commemorate any any life continue on uh, uh, continue having children continue foraging for food that's all you are that's the, that's all you're good for <laughs> that's right that's that's the be all and end all of our existence <laughs> yeah <right? laughs> don't try to rise up above it because uh, science hasn't told you anything different and of course then that leads us to evolutionary uh, religion right. <laughs> uh, so Darwinism is not only the version of uh, is not only the version of uh, evolution on the market. It's not the only one. Um, most alternative theories are uh, even um, more overtly religious. She talks to us about biologist Stuart Kaufman, who is well known for his theory of self organization, but he does not regard it as merely another scientific theory. It is a quote 
new worldview, he tells us, right? <laughs> With a new view of God, not as transcendent, not as agent, but as the very creativity of the universe itself. Whoa, right? So pantheism. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying, right? He treats God's God as a word for the ceaseless flux of the universe. He says that uh, God, that God is enough for him. So the question she asks is then why even retain the word God, right? right? Uh, which, you know, connotes uh, this transcendence and caring, intelligent person. He uh, precisely to smuggle in the emotional power to connect the term. She says Kaufman is open about his intentions, right? He tells us, why do we gain, what do we gain by using uh, the God word? I suspect a great deal for the word carries with it all and reverence. So he knows what he's doing here, right? right? It reminds me of the, the debate that uh, William Lane Craig had with a, a skeptic who um, kept as- ascribing qualities of God to uh, a computer. And he got so far along that, that Craig would, would counter points and say, well, if you don't have this, then you have this. And then you're like, well, well, then you have this. And then, you know, if you don't have this, then you have this. Well, then you're missing out on this. Okay, what if I have all those qualities? He goes, well, then you, you, we're just, uh, we're just, uh, uh, having a uh, a fight on uh, the the, na- the name yeah. because what you just described is the biblical Christian God. <laughs> and he's like, oh well, and of course, uh, applause all around. So. But the cause hasn't got to be God. Well, remember, I gave a, uh, an argument for thinking that this cause is timeless, yes, spaceless, immaterial, uh, enormously powerful, and personal. I think it's a computer. Well, that wouldn't. Uh, computers are designed by people. I no, mean, no, this is a self-designing computer. Uh-huh. Timeless. Timeless. Well, that's a contradiction in terms. Why is it time? What's contradictory about it? A, a computer has to function. It takes. Oh time. no, this is a special computer. <laughs> yeah, but it has to be logically coherent. Oh, it's logically coherent. Yes, you have to be logically coherent. Oh no, coherent. this and, computer and besides, is amazing. No, it, it, besides, it, it would have to be, as I said, a personal being. No. In, a computer is a physical Not this computer. Object. Oh, well, no. Okay. See, what you're doing is you're actually, what you're calling a computer is really God. A, a, a non-physical, non... So Kaufman, she says, hopes to inspire people to respond emotionally to a purely materialistic universe. And here it is. As if... It were the personal God of the Bible. He is another freeloader. Our flashing light of reductionism. Right. Right. Uh, She talks about Jeremy uh, Rifkin, who promotes a quasi-pantheistic version of evolution. He envisions uh, evolution as a process whereby an eminent mind evolved up the ladder. The great chain of being. Right. So uh, and evolution is no longer viewed as a mindless affair. Quite the opposite. It is mind enlarging uh, its domain up the chain of uh, of the species. So in these words, we hear echoes of Hegel's concept of the absolute mind Mm -hmm. evolving up through the history. Riffin goes on. One eventually winds up with the idea of the universe as a mind that oversees, orchestrates and gives order and structure to all things. So notice he's suggesting you got to have this concept in order to explain what's going on, right? Where did it come from? Why do you have to have this concept in order to explain what's going on? Why do you have, right? What is And you see this within um, science fiction. I mean, you you have uh, you know, man start out and then they reach towards the stars and they find uh, you know, the the obelisk and from there they become the star child and yeah. until they're pure mind and energy and you know, this, this transcendent uh, idea of what humanity should be 
uh, going towards yeah. just complete mind. So right. no material, just right. mind. That's right. All right. She says, um, what are the implications of this pantheistic model of evolution? Well, she says, most obviously it eliminates a transcendent creator, which uh, Rifkin takes to be a, a good thing for it means that we no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home. Right? Therefore, we no longer feel obligated to make our behavior conform to uh, with a set of uh, pre-existing cosmic rules. Yeah, so we're no, no longer the creature. Right. We the are the creator. Yeah. Right. We're the architects of the universe. It's us. We put it together. We determine it. Right. We're responsible for nothing outside of ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever, Rifkin tells us. Yeah. Wow. And then God comes along and says, whoa, 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 hold on. You get your own dirt. Yeah. So notice she says that recognizing the religious nature of secular worldviews creates a level playing field. So here's the uh, apologetic application here, right? It undermines the pretensions of secularists to religious neutrality, which they use to claim superiority over religion. Uh, they claim to be objective and fact-based while discredit, uh, discrediting um, religions, religious as biased and faith-based. Yet no worldview is neutral, not even atheism or secularism, right. right? And so that's, so notice what drives these religious variants of evolution is a, a sense that there must be more to reality than the flat, one-dimensional vision offered by uh, by their materialism. Evolutionists are reaching out for higher dimensions to answer the human longing for greater meaning to life. Those longings are more expressions of general revelations. They are signposts, right, pointing to the biblical God. Right, which is the whole point of, of what we're trying to do at this point. Yeah. And so uh, she gives a, a particular uh, example here, and it's her own example. And so um, I, I will just kind of briefly cover this because uh, she really... Um, uh, has talked about this before, especially in our uh, episode 69, uh, which was our interview with Nancy Piercy, where she kind of highlights some of the, the, the points here of, of, of um, how she came to LeBrie and Francis Schaeffer and, and, and uh, thought she was a Christian, wasn't, and then um, uh, came back after a couple of years, which is a, 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 fun, a fun story to listen to. Um, so uh, just to cover a few points here, um, one way to highlight Christianity's attractive feature is to show where secularists borrow from it. Another way to ask is what uh, you lose when you give it up. And so she then um, goes into uh, what what uh, she thought uh, she was giving up, and and she was giving up uh, things like her doubt, and and uh, she she was doubting she was going to people, and they were saying, oh, you know, everyone doubts, or uh, well, it works for me. Uh, and so the decision struck me as a matter of intellectual honesty. In principle, if you do not have good reasons for holding something, then how can you really say you believe it, whether right. Christianity or anything? Right. And so uh, I think um, um, Plantica might have a little disagreement with her on, on, <laughs> on this. Uh, uh, but uh, I think generally people uh, are, are, are going to agree with, with that statement. Yeah. So she looks at the universe and says, uh, you know, if, if it's all a chance product of blind material forces, what purpose does human life have? Uh, I know that uh, as a Christian, my actions have significance, and that's that's only where um, that you would get um, the, the purpose and, and, and say that um, what my actions are lasts into eternity. Uh, Richard Dawkins writes, there is a bottomless 
uh, there is a there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitless indifference. Good night, <laughs> folks. Have, have a good night. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, right. and he, he leaves leaves the audience with that. Right. Except when he's challenged about things like, well, how should I live my life? Well, I'll make fun of Christianity. Do you love your your children? Yeah. Is your wife faithful? How do you know that? Yeah. And do you want her to be? <laughs> As a Christian, and, um, you know, put into the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life if you're? What's the meaning of life in on on, a, on an evolutionary worldview? One thing to say is that the universe doesn't owe us any meaning. It could be that there is no meaning of life, and if so, that would be just tough. Uh, I don't think that because I think that we can all make the, whatever meaning we choose to make. Uh, and you, each of you, will have plenty of meanings in your own life. Uh, you'll be enthusiastic about some things, uh, maybe some sport you play, maybe some books you read, maybe your love life, maybe your, your family life, uh, maybe some of you love nature, some of you love music. Uh, these are all individual meanings that you can give to your life. That doesn't mean that life itself has one special meaning. It doesn't mean that we are here for any particular purpose, any more than mountains are here for a purpose or rocks are here for a purpose. Rocks are just here. Rocks just happen. They are here. Mountains just happen. They are here. There is a sense in which life is just here. Life came about through the evolutionary process. But after billions of years of evolution, Life forms arose that had big brains, big nervous systems, and we've got the biggest brains of all for our size. And so our brains are capable of developing purposes of our own. We, with our big brains, can think of our own purposes. We can aim at things in life. We can have a grand design for the whole of our life, which is the privilege that we enjoy because our brains are so big. And the reason our brains are so big is that evolution uh, gave us big brains. Over a very, very long period of time, the brains of our ancestors got gradually bigger and bigger and bigger until they eventually became so big that they're now capable of enjoying music and poetry and mathematics and love and all the things that give our lives meaning and give our lives our own individual purpose. As a Christian, I have accepted existence as an objective moral standard when I make choices, I can be confident that I was building my life on eternally valid truths. But if there is no God, do transcendent moral truth even exist? And it doesn't seem like that's that's the case. Um, finally, as a Christian, I have known that God himself spoke to the human race through scripture. Many people regard the Bible as a grab bag of works of human authors, a record of spiritual experiences, or a set of ancient myths derived to convey moral lessons. Uh, but the scripture tests uh, to, to something more and... and, um, and uh, definitely being able to, to to walk through that, and it 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 does self attest to itself. You know, oh, you believe the Bible because the Bible says to believe it. Well, I think that's a really good starting point. Yeah. If the Bible says you you shouldn't believe it, well then I I should I should leave it alone and and, and not have to do anything with it. Um, and so uh, you know to 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 base everything ba based off that that uh, little critique. Um, I, I I would always take that point and say, well, uh, the Bible tells me to believe it. I, isn't that a good a good starting point that we can have and we can go into why more. And that's when you bring up a, a worldview mm. standpoint. Yeah. Good. And so, uh, so this is kind of her testimony that she's working through, right. And how she eventually came to Labrie and, and had many of her questions answered. And here's the bottom line. She says, when people raise questions about Christianity, often the best response is not to shut them down. 
Right? Yeah. Oh, you know, you're, you're just young now and, you know, you'll eventually understand that. So just hang in there. She says, but precisely the opposite. Start by pressing them to take more seriously the implications of their own position. As a matter of intellectual integrity, they should stop freeloading and take a fearless uh, inventory of the logical and practical conclusions of their own convictions. Yeah. Or as right? Dr. Stokes says, be more skeptical, even yeah. of what you hold that you shouldn't be holding. Be more skeptical. Right, right. So the stakes are high. What, what God has said to the ancient Hebrews is still true today. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Christianity, she says, is either true or false, but it cannot be dismissed as inconsequential. Right, yeah. right. Especially something that has a history of, of so long. If, if you want to have a revolution, uh, you know, the, the, the Copernican model, uh, you know, uh, overthrowing you know, the entire world, yeah. almost literally, um, you know, it, you have to have that conversation and to just to sh- wave it away as, you know, myth or, you know, this is w- what you want or whatever, um, you know, designation you want to put towards the, the Christian worldview, you at least have to bring it into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, here she, she closes with, with an encouragement, an encouragement to, um, to, to be all things to all people, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 too. Mm-hmm. He does not mean dressing like the locals, nor was he embracing cultural relativism. Instead, he was taking the assumptions of his audience into consideration in his language and approach. He tried to see the world through their eyes so he could communicate more uh, persuasively. Mm -hmm. He was he was honoring them as uh, fellow image bearers and saying, "Okay, here's here's what you're saying. And here are the implications to to that. And so he's. He's meeting them where they're at. He's mm-hmm. not. He's not. Uh, you know. Uh, um, he's not got a prepared speech of, of where where he uh, where you should be going because he wants to take you there because he's memorized it. Uh, you know when he goes to our crocodiles and says, you know, uh, I see your uh, you know religious people. Uh, that's got to be a weird stance for <laughs> for you know people to take. And and I'm sure if Paul did that today. Uh, Christian Twitter would just be ablaze with <laughs> saying, oh, that's not what you should be doing. Just stick right. to the scripture. That's, that's all right. you need. Yeah. And so uh, um, we, we need to uh, represent uh, the other side uh, uh, accurately. We need to um, face the, the people that we're talking to in love, even when they're not being loving towards us, because uh, that's what we're called to do. Right. Um, so we're to speak the truth in love. Right. right. Always be prepared for a defense for anyone who asks for the reason, the hope that is in you. And there's the truth. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, there's the love. Mm. So First Peter three fifteen, and mm. so that's where we get the word, you know, apologetics from with apologia, uh, a reason, a defense, uh, but do so with gentleness and respect. And you know, we again have this understanding of, you know, while we were haters of God, God loved us. Uh, he saved us from a, a great many things that we've done. And so uh, when uh, unbelievers act like unbelievers, we shouldn't be surprised, and we should want them to desire. Uh, God in the way that we do. Um, and so, uh, you know, in what way uh, is is your be- best witness? Again, God God is the ultimate person that saves, but he uses us as the, the conduit, the means uh, through which um, uh, we bring uh, people to salvation, where he brings uh, people to saving knowledge. And so uh, we need to have that, um, that, that uh, gentleness. Live by faith, confident with God, that God is able to, to work good out of evil and injustice. If we do not cultivate the same confidence, the danger 
is that Christians will tend towards defensiveness and anger, and that's not where we want to be. We want to be loving, we want to be kind, we want to be gentle. All the fruits of the Spirit should be exemplified. And when when they get angry, uh, we shouldn't revel in that. Uh, we should... Uh, yeah, you know, I want, I want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not there to win the debate. That's we're there right. to win the audience to that's Christ. Right. So, that's right. So um, it, it, it was one of the uh, good points that I like about her book is uh, it's practical even to the point of, of uh, how to bring people to, to saving faith. And so that's what yeah. I appreciate about this. Good, good. So uh, part three is uh, is going to be on the block for next time. And that's just uh, pretty much the conclusion of, of kind of the implications of what to do with the five principles. Yeah. So uh, we'll be covering that and then we'll figure out what to do for our next book. Um, <laughs> if you want to help uh, in that discussion, um, uh, feel free to communicate with us. Uh, those that are patrons, uh, supporters like uh, Lauren Becca from uh, Tulips and Honey, uh, they, their, um, their, their, uh, Patreon support allows them to have uh, more say in, in what we might do. And, uh, we'd love to grow, uh, that audience as well and, and kind of, um, uh, e- e- float, uh, videos and ideas, uh, of what you'd like to see, uh, yeah. past you as well. And so, um, so if you, if you like what we're doing, press the like button, subscribe uh, on, on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for doing all that uh, that you have, and uh, you know, hopefully you've, you've enjoyed the book study as much as I have with Tony, and I'm sure he gets something out of it too. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks for uh, for joining us this week, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.